Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Scholar of religion Robert Orsi imagines an alternative to the future of religion that early moderns proclaimed was inevitable. The gods really present in the Catholic sense were translated into metaphors and symbols, into functions of the social and political. Presence became evidence of superstition, of the infantile and irrational. His new book, History and Presence, confronts this intellectual heritage, proposing instead a model for the study of religion that begins with humans and gods present to each other in everyday life. These intersubjective encounters are always, Robert Orsi writes, an engagement with oneself and one's world in all modalities of being. Along the way, History and Presence introduces us to Marian apparitions, the cult of the saints, relations with the dead, clerical sexual abuse, and a host of other events and encounters. Robert Orsi is speaking to us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he's a fellow this year at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. He also holds the Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University in Chicago. Hello and welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Hillary. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So I wanted to begin by laying out some of the initial framework that you offer in the book about debates regarding presence in the 16th century. So you clarify how modernity and religion were co-constituted in modern critical theory as well. What is that paradigm that you're talking about, that modern normative religion, and how does the 16th century fit into it? Well, maybe the best way uh, to talk about this is... Uh, there is in psychological circles, or there has been in psychological circles, a normative model of religious development that was very popular in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, it's called the stages of faith development. And this proposes that uh, human beings can, uh, just the way we progress from uh, infantile ways of thinking and then to increasing maturity and so forth, just try to repurpose a developmental model for religion. The reason that I'm bringing this up is that in these stages of faith, they went from one to six. And one, one, two, three, which were the lowest stages of faith, the most primitive, with quotation marks around primitive, although I'm not sure the people who ascribe to this particular theory would put quotation marks, the lowest stages of faith, one, two, three, were the stages, were the the ways of being religious in which people were most physically in contact with the gods that they believed in, whether these were spirits or demons or whatever the panoply of religious figures are, at the lower stages of faith, according to this normative modern account of what religious maturity is, um, at the lower stages of faith, the gods are material. As you go up the stages, the gods become more and more uh, immaterial. They move inside. They become conscience and they become an awareness of life and so forth until at the very top, the gods are really a, a part of one's own being. That's the normative model view. The lower stages are primitive. Therefore, they're, they're uneducated people. They're, that's the model that dominated the understanding of what religion is in the modern world. And how did those debates in the 16th century play into it? 
Well, the debates over the Eucharist, which is where I begin my book, as you said in your really helpful summary there, um, the debates over the Eucharist uh, had to do with, was Jesus really present, bread, uh, body and blood, in the consecrated wafer of the Eucharist? That's what Catholics believe. So, for example, when I was a kid, the nuns would tell me, I went to Catholic school, and the nuns would tell me that if I bit down on the host, which I wasn't supposed to do. That was a big no-no. If I bit down at the host, the host would start, it would start bleeding. Uh, it would, I, I would actually cause it pain. So that's how literal a sense of the realness is. And it's very common, as I say in the book, you know, the realness of the host uh, has a very complex history. Uh, uh, it was used in all kinds of ways, both nefarious and not, but in any case, both good and bad. So that's the Catholic doctrine. As the Reformation proceeded, Luther did not challenge that. Luther had his own understanding of the real presence. But as the Reformation proceeded and more radical theological voices began to be heard, in particular, the, the, the uh, Swiss theologian uh, Zwingli, uh, as the Reformation proceeded, the idea that God was in the host became more and more attenuated. So for, for Zwingli, it was a symbol. The, 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 the host was a symbol to recall Jesus, but it wasn't the real presence anymore. And that became, it was that understanding of, uh, of the host that became, that of how God is, so it's not just a host. The question really is, how is God present in the world? And essentially, Catholics said God is present in matter. God can be present in the host. Uh, you know, the Virgin Mary can make appearances. There's a materiality to God's presence in the world. But that materiality got increasingly attenuated as time went by. What begins as a theological debate, as I say in the, um, in the book, eventually becomes a theoretical position, which is that, the more, as I said earlier, the more sophisticated forms of religion do not practice pr the presence of the gods. One of the interesting things about all this is that these debates, which seem like completely internecine provincial debates in a tiny part of the world, namely Europe, they actually got carried out to the rest of the world by uh, in that great age of colonization and uh, evangelization when mer European merchants and, and armies and navies were spreading around the world. They actually took these debates everywhere they went, and they became a lens for viewing all religions. So when Protestants encounter, when Protestant missionaries, in particular the missionaries and merchants from the, the British Empire and the, and, the, and the Northern European empires, when they encountered other religions, you know, the religions of South Asia or the religions of East Asia, they used this template. They used the template of those Eucharistic debates and the prohibition or the contempt for the doctrine of real presence, they use that as a way of looking at other religions. So they would rank religions according to whether or not they practiced presence, real presence, as I keep saying. So as you point out in the book, then that links to what you were talking about just a moment ago, which is this larger template in what we now call religious studies that grows out of the modern period, how we think about religion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when I first got to college in the 1970s and started studying religion, now it's a little different, thank goodness. But when I first got there, uh, religious studies, you never, you know, there, they, there was no interest in the study, in the academic study of religion, in holy cards, statues, material culture, you know, all the things that you and I happen to be interested in, though they were just not on the map. 
that stuff was superstition, and that didn't belong in a religion class. That didn't belong in the scholarly study of religion, unless it unless scholars participated in the designation of such practices as superstitious. Uh, then it was okay. So yeah, that got completely built in. I mean, I quote David Hume in there at one point, who says that uh, there a day will come when when uh, humans on this planet will not even be able to believe that once upon a time other humans thought that their gods were really present. And as I say in the book, Hume was wrong about that because that is the way most of the world is religious. So it's important to emphasize here that I am not saying the gods went away. I'm saying that the gods, which is my, which is a kind of synecdoche for all the kinds of beings that human beings are in relationship to bodhisattvas, deities, spirits, you know, the spirits of Kandamble, voodoo, and so forth, all the dead, the demonic, all the beings, uh, they didn't go away. They were just located in a particular place, politically, psychologically, intellectually, morally, and so forth. Uh, but they've been here, uh, and they've just been denied and overlooked and not thought of. You know, they're not, you, they're not, they're not, we don't conceptualize religion with a sense of these figures robustly present and active in the world. As you've been working on the book, and, and this is uh, the culmination of many years of research in different avenues, are there certain kinds of books or thinkers that you've returned to over and over again? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, for example, I love Mama Lola, Karen McCarthy Brown's book, because she's very, I mean, she really does. She's very attentive to the spirits of voodoo as being spirits in which uh, people are, human beings and the spirits are present to each other. And in this relationship, things happen. You know, I also really admire William Christian Jr.'s work, which I think is fabulous, his work on Catholic Catholic visions, Catholic apparitions, and so forth. Um, When I first began thinking about this a long time ago, I was searching for some, not so much psychological language, but I I was trying to find out, I was trying to, I was trying to think about a language where I could talk about these, you know, a relationship between a, a, a special being like a saint or a bodhisattva or a demon and a human. How do you talk about that relationship? And, and more than that, how do you talk about what can happen in the context of that relationship? And here I found the work of the Object Relations School of Psychoanalysis very helpful, in particular the work of D.W. Winnicott which helped me conceptualize the space, the creative space that can take shape between uh, these, t- these, these kinds of figures, humans and others. So uh, I return often to Winnicott uh, as well. And you note that the gods have uh, subversive potentialities, as you put it. A lot of the, the way that you write is to use real encounters with people, their stories, in order to get at these really big ideas that you've, you've just been talking about. Is there someone with whom you spoke whose story really stands out for you in terms of this subversive potential, as you call it? Well, I'm always interested when the gods, again, uh, using that synecdically, and I could, I'm happy to talk in the context specifically of Catholics, but I'm always interested when the gods come, and this is really what started me on this project, uh, both a long time ago and more immediately when I was writing this book. I'm always taken, I'm always curious when the gods come and surprise people by what they say. You know, so it's one thing if, 
you know, the gods come and and say endorse social norms. So that you know, the the, the the spirit comes and says, okay, well, you know, you really need to be in a heterosexual relationship, and it needs to be that that's the kind of relationship. But I am much more interested when the gods come and tell people uh, things that disrupt social convention or that disrupt expectations. Um, so one of my favorite stories from the book is, uh, is the story about the woman uh, in Detroit at the end of the Second World War who's very worried about her brothers uh, who are in the services. And uh, she gets word somehow that, her, that at least one of her brothers is heading towards the, uh, Asia, that they may be involved in the, in the planned uh, invasion of uh, Japan. And she's terrified. She's just terrified. She's she feels uh, desperate. I mean, how she wants to know how am I going to help my brothers? And so she decides to double down on all the things that women on the home front were being told by the authorities on the home front to do. So she's going to start collecting more string, and she's going to start collecting more scrap, and she's going to give blood, and she's all the things that women were being told that they had to do, and if they didn't do, they were not supporting their men in the services. When the Virgin Mary appears to her and says, "All that stuff is not going to help. You, you, all that scrap and string and blood and everything you're going to do, everything basically that you've been told to do is not going to help. Uh, what is going to help, she says, is for you to get together with other women like yourself. And then the Virgin Mary promises that she'll be present with these women, and she says, uh, "You get together with other women like yourself and you pray." And you pray for your men overseas, and you and and so the, basically the Virgin Mary is pointing her towards kind of groups of solidarity with other women who will recognize her suffering. But then the Virgin Mary says a very interesting thing, as this is recorded, although this is mostly left out of the lore about this um, apparition. The Virgin Mary then says, "Remember, this is at the end of the war, so people are anticipating the end and they're hopeful." She says, "You know, you have you had better realize." When, when your men come back, they're going to be broken and wounded and hurt. They're going to be missing limbs. And it's going to be very, very difficult. And I can tell you, Hillary, that was not a message that was being – that is not the message that governments were, were saying. I mean, you know, the war was over. We're going to be victorious. The men are coming home. Hooray. But the Virgin Mary was saying, you know, men get hurt. And, and these wars are horrible. And men are going to come home hurt. And you're going to have to take care of them. Um, and that was a striking break from the message that was being given women at that time. So this is kind of a nice segue because the next question I wanted to ask you was about Marian apparitions. You open the book in some sense, the chapters where you're talking about the modern period anyway, with Marian apparitions. Why did you feel like that was the place to begin? Well, part of the, the purpose of the first two chapters, one of the things I say in the first two chapters is because is because that because the idea of the real presence of the gods was so marginalized or discarded in modernity we have an impoverished language of presence we don't know we don't even know how to talk about it. like how do you talk about presence um, and the gods being present to humans so i turned to marian apparitions as a way to as a kind of case study to begin developing a language of presence you know, for example, I'm interested in the fact that in Catholic environments, and, and I'm basing, I'm sort of, what I'm trying to do in the book is develop a theory for an alternate study of religion in the modern world that I derive from, but that is not limited to Catholicism. 
So the book is not so much about Catholicism as much as it employs Catholicism as a case study to develop a series of theoretical possibilities. So I use these case studies to think about, like, um, you know, Catholics, uh, Mary appears at Lourdes, but uh, in France, which is a particular place in France, but there are imitation Lourdes shrines around the world. There are imitation Lourdes shrines in churches, and I talk about one in the Bronx, but then there are also Lourdes shrines in people's homes. So then the question becomes, what's the relationship between Mary really present to people at the main shrine, at the, at the, at the place of the apparition, and all these other places? And that, that requires that we understand, we have a more capacious understanding of presence, because in the Catholic understanding, Mary is just as present and just as really there at these other shrines, at these so-called imitation shrines or fake shrines, as she was at the real shrine. And in fact, that the whole notion of real and fake kind of dissolves in the experience of the real presence. And that's why I use it. I use it to sort of begin to develop some theoretical ideas about how to think about presence um, as a phenomenon in not just the religious environment, but in the political, social, uh, domestic environments in which people live. I think that's a really important point in the book that comes out in a few different chapters, this idea that these encounters are embedded within structures of meaning and power and discourse and all this kind of stuff, but they're also not reducible to them. They kind of flow outside the bounds also of these particularities of historical and, and social environments. There's an excess, an excess. And the, as I keep saying, there's an excess, and the excess comes from the fact that the gods are are outside of people. I mean, I think the mistake that theoreticians made, that theorists of religion made in the 18th, 19th century was that they assumed, and, and this gets tighter and tighter as modernity goes on, they assumed that there's a direct relationship between the desires, needs, perceptions, political location of the human and the special being that 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 human encounters that there's a one-to-one correlation so if a poor person prays to if a a poor poor person encounters a a, a figure a, a, a special figure when i'm calling a god if a poor person encounters a god that god will be a function of that person's poverty and that god will reflect back that person's poverty and i'm saying no that there's an excess to these beings, and they they tend to disrupt those, or they potentially can disrupt those neat associations and identities. Um, You know, in in an earlier book of mine, uh, uh, Thank You, St. Jude, I talked about the way women were praying to St. Jude for things that the Catholic Church itself did not approve. You know, at a time when the church, when male authorities in American Catholicism had only contempt for women who went out to work because that was seen as not fulfilling the responsibilities of true womanhood, women were praying to St. Jude to find them jobs. And and they were believing that St. Jude was helping them find work. Um, And that's where the connection is not, I mean, it's those disconnects that are important for better and for worse. I mean, I, you know, the gods, I mean, I keep saying over and over again, the gods are not only good, they're present, but their presence can be scary. It can be disruptive. It can be, it can, it can cause conflict. One of the really important phrases that you use is abundant events. Can you tell us something more about what that means and how you employ it? 
Well, what I meant by abundant event is the event when, and people people talk about, I mean, this idea of the abundant, I mean, that's my language, but the idea came from talking to people about their lives. It's an it's a, a specially privileged encounter with uh, a sacred figure really present, right? So I also tell the story in there. And, you know, there's the big abundant events or the obvious abundant events, you know, when, when the Virgin Mary appears to to a person, that's an obvious abundant event, right? Because there the real presence is manifest. But, you know, I, I tell the story in there of a woman I, I got to know in Arizona who was being abused by her stepfather and began taking her pain and her despair to a figure of the sacred heart of Jesus, uh, uh, who was a figure who was important to her grandmother. Her grandmother had an image of this figure of Jesus over her grandmother's bed in Mexico. This young woman in Arizona began taking her pain and despair to a figure of the sacred heart of Jesus in a local church. And this woman, for this woman, those encounters with the sacred heart of Jesus really present to her were essential to her. That was what I mean by an abundant event. So it's not a singular moment in this case, but it's sort of an abundant relationship. Um, she encounters the sacred heart in this church. She links that image to her grandmother and she begins taking her, um, her, her needs to this figure who then acts in her life in a very, as I talk about in the book, in a very ambiguous way, the, the Sacred Heart, she prays to the Sacred Heart that she'll be free of her, her stepfather's um, abuse. And it doesn't happen right away. It goes on. The abuse continues for some years. But then one day, her, her stepfather worked in a mine, and one day they hear the alarm. She and her mother hear the alarm signals going off in the, alarm, in the, in the mine. They run over. And they, they, they discover that her stepfather had been crushed uh, beneath a mine, a mine collapse and killed. So now the abuse was over. But she was left with this question, did, I, did, did, the, did the Sacred Heart of Jesus do that for me? And when I met this woman, she was in her late 50s, early 60s. This had happened when she was in her late teens. And, you know, this question remained an open question in her life for all those years. And she came to talk to me about this because she really wanted to tell me. You know, she wanted to, in my presence, not looking to me for an answer, but she, you know, the question was, did, did the Sacred Heart of Jesus do this for me? Did I do this? Who did this? Who killed my stepfather? There's a lot of powerful stories, and that's certainly one of them. And something that you point out as you were just telling the story is the purpose of the image, that she has this image, and that is really the vector through which she's she is in contact with the divine or with presence, you could say. And the chapter on printed presence, I thought, was one of the most fascinating in the book, especially because you begin it by telling us about a woman dying in Nebraska in the 1920s who's being given a holy card to actually ingest. And this tells us something pretty fundamental about how Catholics have used printed words and images. What are some of the key printed objects that you tracked as you were writing this chapter? Okay, but not just Catholics. Let me say, um, I was once talking to a friend of mine, who uh, a Jewish friend of mine, who's a scholar, was a scholar of uh, northern uh, northern African is uh, Judaism. And she was talking about the ways in which, uh, in which Jews in North Africa use burned pieces of um, the Torah and uh, mix it into glasses of, mix the ashes into glasses of water and drink it uh, in healing rituals. So uh, part of what I'm saying in that chapter is let's look at how Catholics, how a culture of real presence treats the printed word. 
And then let's think about printed word in modernity and see where else we find this. Um, so Catholics use holy cards and uh, uh, there's comic books. I talk about comic books and uh, comic books of saints uh, and so on. So uh, there's a whole, there's a, there's a huge amount of printed things. Uh, and as I say in, in the book, they're both, they're, they're printed, printed things. And then, and I really struggled to figure out a term for this sort of unprinted written material. So I talk about the ways in which the nuns in school uh, had Catholic children write messages to the saints and to, to write their prayers out uh, to God and to the Virgin Mary and so forth, or to write birthday cards to Jesus, or to write birthday cards to, de uh, to dead children that they knew. Um, and that was a kind of practice of presence because through the writing, uh, the writing itself was a practice of presence, as I say. I mean, that's why the nuns paid so much attention to handwriting, because the, the idea was, and I had those fabulous uh, discussions by nuns of the importance of, which I just was so delighted when I found these uh, sources, where these nuns are saying, you know, writing, when your hand writes, and this is a very old tradition, by the way, in Catholicism, when your hand writes, if you write out the sacred heart of Jesus, lovingly and attentively, you are practicing the presence of the sacred heart of Jesus or whatever figure whose name you're writing. Yeah, that was totally fascinating to me. And it, it uh, made me think that Jesus would not have appreciated any cards that I had written to him, given, given my handwriting. <laughs> but it also actually made me think of when I was in Hebrew school, when I was a kid, Judaism, you don't write out the name of God. And so even in English, they would teach you to write G-D, you leave out the O. And some right. of our Hebrew school teachers, they would walk around and they would hit your desk if you forgot and you added that O in as you were copying something out or you were writing something out. And the idea, again, was to teach this discipline of writing. So as you note in the book, you know, presence and absence are are both important to talk about. And so the absence of writing the full name of God, I think was also a really interesting right. kind of way to affect presence. And think about how that moved into your body. I mean, when, you know, your body tenses when the, when the teacher is near, because you know that if you've done it wrong, you're going to hear a loud uh, noise. You're going to hear a loud noise. Um, and I mean, that, I mean, at that point, your body, the desk, the pen, the paper, they're all involved in, in a very potent form of religious formation, certainly, but, and, but also potentially, in some cases, in an experience of presence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was something that I remember having to sort of discipline myself out of, in a sense, and feeling very uncomfortable for the first few years of university where I told myself I was going to write the word God, but it still always made me uncomfortable. And now I've gotten over it, but it took a while. Yeah, no, these things, I mean, uh, presence as practiced in Catholicism, but I think, I mean, once we pay attention to it in Catholicism, I think we'll see it in other religious contexts, as you just uh, illustrated. Um, it's very powerful and it's not easily shed. I, I mean, that was the point of the last chapter, the point of the, the, what I was interested in the last chapter was which is about the sexual abuse of children within the context of real presence and catholic children were often abused on the altar they were abused i mean catholic children abused sexually abused by priests 
were often abused on the altar or in the sacristy, sacristy where the, um, the implements of mass, the priest's clothing were kept. They may have been abused in the rectory where only priests lived and so forth. Uh, and the priest himself was said to be one step away from God. What did that mean to be abused in a culture of presence by a figure who is said to more intimately embody the presence of God on earth than any other figure, who was responsible indeed for making God present at the Eucharist, because which only priests could do, by consecrating the bread and the wine at Mass. So what did it mean to be abused by a figure of in that proximity to real presence? And I think that that point, actually, that, that you make very strongly in the last chapter, especially within the context of a book where um, the Eucharist and the real presence in the Eucharist uh, runs throughout. That point about the role of priests, especially in mid-century American Catholicism, I mean, that is crucial for the stories that you tell about the sexual abuse. And it's something that I think has been left out a lot of times in both media coverage of uh, the sexual abuse, or maybe put in, but not actually discussed as something that is connected to this presence that you're talking about, which gives us a whole different sense of the power of a priest uh, within the context of the community. Exactly, exactly. And this is why, you know, it's not analogous to say that, well, you know, sports coaches also abuse. Yeah, well, that's okay. That's one situation, but that's not this situation. This was a different situation. And the, and sports coaches don't have the power in their hands to make God's present. You know, and I talk, to, I tell in there a, a story, I think I do, of one survivor who, who told me about how awful it was to see the priest at Mass holding up the host that the priest had just consecrated when this child knew that those hands were the same hands that had abused him. And, you know, another survivor said that she would always have this fantasy of the consecrated host falling down and crushing her abuser priest beneath the weight of the, of the real presence. So, I mean, they're struggling within the context of real presence to understand their experience to, to, uh, and also remember, as I was saying earlier, when I was talk- when we were talking about your uh, experience uh, with the you know teachers wrapping the table and utensiling and the way that the body gets for survivors, the real presence wasn't something out there only, but it was also something in their bodies. And so, part of what I talk about in that chapter is the way people who have been formed to the real presence of God in the world and then abused by these agents of real presence, have to struggle with their own inheritance of presence. I mean, are they, can they still go to church? Can they still receive communion? Some are afraid to receive communion. Some can't go into church. The experience of presence is overwhelming because it recalls their abuse. I mean, it, it's a very charged uh, uh, experience. And the reason that chapter is important to me to have there at the end is that it underscores the fact, as I keep saying over and over again, that presence is both good and bad, and its effects in the world can be both good and bad, or equivocal, or neither, or it can blur the good and bad boundary. But different readers will have different understandings of that final chapter. They'll either see people trapped in the context of real presence, or they'll see people struggling to find a way, their own way to real presence after that way has been so brutally uh, obstructed by these predator priests. You have one priest who actually was abused. I, I'm now forgetting his name. Uh, 
who was abused as a child and he ended up becoming a priest and he has this line and it's it was deeply affecting you know he says that god had nothing to do with it what does he mean by that how does that get us to this idea of this excess the the god who is present and yet in excess of human beings as well I think there he was really trying, he was speaking to other survivors and he was trying to tell other survivors not to, not to mistake the priest's activities, not to, not, not to mistake the priest's identity or anything the priest may have said, because often the priest did implicate God in the abuse, not to take that literally or seriously that, that, that God is, there's this excess to God that's not there in the abuse. But as I say in the book, that's a very hard message, because if God wasn't there in the abuse, where was God? I mean, if God is really present, then where was God and what was God doing? And, you know, that's a struggle that survivors really have to, that some survivors, I'm very careful to keep saying not all survivors, um, but the ones I spoke to, the ones I spoke to really struggled with that. And these are people who have both found a way back to the church, if that's what they wanted, or have happily left the church. But they struggle with this question because, again, it's inside them as much as it's in the world. You know, what do I do with this inheritance of presence now? Um, and he was basically saying, look, there's an excess to that. God God is greater than the priests. Yeah, and that sometimes getting back to the story that you told earlier about the woman in Arizona who was being abused, not by a priest, but by her stepfather, but that sometimes those questions just remain an open wound. Did God act? Uh, did, did the Sacred Heart act to protect me? Did did God not act? Was he there? Was he not there? And you leave those kind of yeah, questions open. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the real problems in the interpretation of religion, religions, that, that uh, characteristic of modernity is that they are understood to be functional. Um, that in gears in, in the in the in the understanding of say the anthropologist Clifford Gears that religions provide meaning and or closure you know they provide healing and I really want in this book to disrupt that paradigm because I mean very often they they don't do those things not in any final sense as you're saying and what they really do is they they provide more questions and they necessitate a move outward to other people to think about these questions. Um, and that's why there's that chapter about my mother's death in there, because in a, in a, at a level of intimacy, I probably could not have achieved. I, I can't think of another way to achieve that level of intimacy. You know, I was privy to my mother, who is a very devout woman, but her struggles with uh, the reality of heaven and, and how it brought my father and my mother together at my mother's death bed to talk about that question. And, you know, I mean, I think a person could look at my mother and, you know, following that grid that we began with, you know, the normative grid of modern religion, they would have said, well, of course, you know, she believes in heaven, so she's going to die and it's all going to be great. Uh, she's uh, she's going to go off happy. That wasn't what it was. I mean, she struggled at the very end, how, how devout she was. You know, she asked my father, do you think it's all real? And what, what I'm trying to say there is that those questions brought her out into a closer relationship to my father at that point. And they spent a lot of time talking about that question. Um, and it wasn't a question that can be, it's not a question of meaning easily resolved or easily imposed. 
There's one aspect of the book that this brings up we haven't talked about yet is this question about the relationship between the living and the dead, the kinds of claims that the dead make on the living and the kinds of responsibilities that the living have for the dead. What are some of the ways that you talk about that in the book, some of the stories that you tell, besides the story of your mother, of course, that you just mentioned? The centerpiece of that chapter is a, a shrine um, in a place I can't, uh, I can't identify a shrine where a, uh, a dead boy appears shortly after his death in an image of the suffering, suffering Jesus that his mother had on the wall of this boy's bedroom. He appears to his mother first in the frame of this image, and then he appears to his whole family. Um, the local priest sees him, and then eventually this becomes uh, uh, an unadvertised and largely hidden shrine um, where people would go and, and slowly they began seeing their dead in in the image. And what was so striking to me about this was the the first of all the fluidity between the living and the dead, that the dead were not absent, that they were really present. And then the way in which the dead made demands. You know, so at a time, for example, when uh, Catholics had begun when when after the Second Vatican Council when there was an effort to really reorient Catholic death practices away from the immediacy of the dead, this perception or experience of the immediacy of the dead, towards, I think, a more modern and therefore normative understanding of the dead as being no longer among us. Um, that whole chapter is about the insistence on the dead of being present and and I, I think that, you know, if moderns can do it, if moderns can say goodbye to the dead and that's it, uh, I think, again, a lot of people on, in, in, on our planet today, that isn't their relationship with the dead. They are in relationship with the dead. And that, again, because of the way in which we've imported modern norms into theory, we have overlooked the intensity of these relationships and the way the dead make their make their wishes known to the living, you know? <clears throat> so it was clear that this boy really liked the, uh, I mean, as his parents tell the story, they really liked uh, saying a rosary at his wake because, you know, the lights were flickering at the wake and his, uh, his parents saw this as his approval of what they were doing. So they saw him as present at the, at the, at the, in the funeral parlor. And as you point out in that chapter as well, in some sense, the fact that this boy was drawing all these people to his parents, including you and, and your companions who went to the house, that this was also another way of sort of making his wishes known. He wanted that house to be filled with people who would come and listen to his mother and be with her and uh, eat cake and drink coffee with, with his parents. Yeah, and I try to show that that doesn't just come out of anywhere, right? It, out of nowhere. I mean, it, it, the Catholics had, again, you know, raised themselves, formed a world in which the dead were present. And again, I mean, I, I think this is more common on our planet today. This is one of those things that, um, you know, was said to have disappeared, but I think it has not. And therefore, as I say at the very end, if we, if we, I mean, I think of secularization now not as the elimination of the gods, because obviously we know that the gods, you know, even in secular societies, ostensibly secular societies, there are still gods, there are gods in law courts that say, you know, there's the evocations of God. But I think of secularization now as the dematerialization of the supernatural, the, the, uh, the fact that, the, and, and the distancing of humans and the supernatural. 
you know, the, the imposition of a mandatory distance between humans and the dead and the holy and so forth. Um, so it's okay within certain places and certain times, but it's not supposed to happen on a city bus or it's not supposed to happen in a secular cemetery or, but as I say, and as, you know, Karen Brown, I, I evoked earlier, she has a great story of a, of a, of a, of a voodoo spirit appearing in the middle of a hospital to one of, uh, uh, one of the people who served this particular spirit. And that's what I'm curious about, the way in which these figures disrupt the uh, taken-for-granted boundaries of modern existence, including the political ones. And this is your story about Lizzie, who was a graduate student, and her need to go to Chimayo and then also to bring back that dirt and have it with her in the bounded space of the hospital is is another nice example of just what you were talking about vis-a-vis um, Karen McCarthy Brown's work as well. Right, I wanted right. to ask you about uh, the Spiritual Society for the Unclaimed Dead, which I thought was <laughs> just fascinating. Are they still around? Uh, maybe we should maybe we should, no, we should explain uh, actually, what, they, what they were doing. Well, this was this was a society founded uh, after the Second World War. I, I'm forgetting now the exact place. I think it was Cleveland. Um, it was found, but there were many such societies. I think this was a society founded uh, by a, a woman who was at a funeral mass one morning. And usually, the way Catholic churches work, you, know, you had early morning mass, and then around nine or ten o'clock, the funerals would begin. And so you'd have a ten o'clock funeral, eleven o'clock funeral, twelve o'clock. And so this woman had stayed around church one day, and she was at the 10 o'clock, uh, one of the later funerals, and she noticed that there was nobody there to mourn, that this person was just, there was just a coffin and, and the priest saying the mass. And she was devastated by this because, the, because she didn't want the dead to be alone. I mean, the dead shouldn't be alone like that. And so she started this society in which people would volunteer to adopt, basically, dead people, and then they would, once they had accepted this responsibility, they would they would take care of this dead person's grave. They would pray for this dead person. They would they would remember this dead person on the memorial of their death. And, and this way, this dead person would not be alone because Catholics had this idea that the dead ought not to, and not just Catholics. Most of the world, for most of human history, has had the idea that the dead should not be left alone; that they need to be tended to. For for sometimes because they're scary, sometimes because you know love is hard to love doesn't necessarily stop at the borders of death, um, but the dead need to be tended to. And so she started the society, and yes, it is still in existence, although it's changed and, and it's made itself into a more recognizably modern group. Maybe just because I've been working on sponsorship, but there was just something about the first women who signed up for this the society you note were some of the girls who were working for the Bell Telephone Company and they sponsored like 12 dead. <laughs> so they were they were saying prayers for the dead and then also visiting their grave sites was part of the responsibility that you took on when you when you sponsored an unclaimed uh, dead. And you know, I mean, you know, you think about this, and I'm sure it seems crazy. I mean, to, to any modern, you know, anybody who's, who thinks of religion as superstition or so forth, this is just going to seem horrible. But you know, again, I think most of the planet, for most of human history, has had a much more uh, intimate relationship with their dead than that, than than the than the boundaries set by modern expectations and modern anxieties. You know, where the dead are gone. One of the 
things I also really loved about the, or the section I really loved in this book was uh, your discussion of Elsie's cards on eBay. And in a sense, it reminded me a bit of what we've just been discussing. Elsie is the dead who made a kind of claim on the living on you as the writer. But also, as I was reading, I felt like uh, she was making a claim on me as a reader as well. Huh, I hadn't thought about that. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, concerning well, you know, the, the kind of uh, wanting to hear her story unfold and sort of drawing us into her own story through the bits and pieces, the marginalia that she had written on these cards that you're unpacking for us as the historian. And uh, I was curious, what other things have you picked up or seen on eBay? What, what are the, some of the most interesting things that you've that you've gotten? Oh, my God, I've gotten, um, uh, you know, it was common in Catholic homes most of modernity, at least, you know, from the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries into the 20th century, it was common for Catholics to have a, a crucifix that came apart. It was a crucifix with an image of Jesus on it, but it, it, un- it unpacked, and the image of Jesus would stand up inside the crucifix. Once you remove the image of Jesus inside the crucifix, was candles and a, and a cloth and oil. And that crucifix was basically used when a person was dying. That crucifix became a kind of uh, little mini altar that the priest who came for to deliver what was then called the last rites would use. And uh, there was a candle in there for the person to greet the priest at the door with a candle because the priest would be holding the real presence in his hands, the, the host. And he needed to be greeted with a candle. He'd be ushered into the house and then there'd be this... And I, I found a couple of those. I had found shrines, little mini shrines. Um, I was going to buy a confessional box, but my wife put her foot down and said, there's no way, there's no way that we're having a confessional box in the house. Plus, it was very expensive. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the great scholar of material uh, religion, David Morgan, who's at Duke University, uh, he and I have had to make a pact that we're not going to outbid each other on, on uh, eBay because we sometimes we have found until we made this pact that without knowing it, you know, we'd start bidding on an image that we know no, nobody else would want. And I'd be sitting there thinking, why? Who is bidding against, bidding against me? Who could possibly want? Who's, who's this DM from North Carolina? <laughs> <laughs> Who could possibly want this, uh, this uh, planter in the shape of the Virgin Mary? You know, of course, it was David Morgan. Um, so uh, we now have a, an arrangement where we don't, we don't, we try not to outbid each other. <laughs> That's true. I guess now that David Morgan has been so interested in the Sacred Heart of Jesus, also he's probably scouring for for these kinds of things. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You have to be careful. But I mean, I think it's. A, I mean, the whole eBay thing is a sign of the fate of real presence because, you know, all of this stuff that I talk about, the images, um, holy cards, I mean, again, they don't go away, but modernizing priests and nuns and parishioners who were eager to bring their church into a more recognizable modern aesthetic dump this stuff. And eBay is a great repository of what I call in the book media of presence. Um, So, you know, that's really where you go and you can find just tons of this. I mean, well, and as you point out in the book, I mean, if we're talking about the way that, that history is written here, the kinds of sources that we can find, as you note in the book with Elsie's cards, those kinds of cards were never considered history. 
So they're not really kept, or certainly anyway, not kept in, in a way that's easy to find in an official archive. So these are the kinds of things that someone would have in, for example, an estate sale or something like that. And then it'll appear on eBay, where where you and David Morgan can snatch it up. <laughs> but it offers us a way to kind of um, keep these kinds of uh, everyday objects in circulation and bring them into our histories as well. Well, look at consider the fact that there's no museum, and you know, in some ways, there's a critique of museums that goes through all this because, in, in a sense, museums represent the end of presence, because you know, museum discourse strips these in, in, these objects of their efficacy and they and they locate them in another discourse. But uh, you know, there's no museum or no place where say I can send students, or you know, you you and I can send students to see the kinds of things that we're talking about. You know, there's no, they're not understood to be valuable artifacts of a world. But in fact, this is how Catholics made their world. And it's also how many people around the world in different religious traditions make their world. And all of this stuff, you know, these are not the questions that historians are often interested in. Yet this is, this is where religion lives, I think. And this is also where, not privately, and I keep saying this is not about private this is how religion most powerfully intersects, not as a set of ideas, but as stuff and practices and things with the political or with the domestic or with other people's lives and so forth. This gets us back to the intersection you were talking about earlier, where um, of secularization, what we sometimes think of as the idea of secularization, but actually thinking of secularization as a dematerialization fundamentally. Right. A depresencing. A depresencing. That's yeah, I like that. A normative absencing of the, the, the religious. Can you tell us a bit about what you're working on now? I, I think you're continuing with your work on the sexual abuse. Is that right? Yes, and I'm trying to go more deeply into the the history of uh, only the 20th century and only in the United States. Um, although this is obviously a huge comparative, could be a huge comparative project because you know this obviously happened in in Ireland, and I mean it's happened wherever there were Catholics. I'm trying to understand it more in the context of its culture of the culture of Catholicism, the changing culture of child protection, the changing culture of trauma, and so forth. So I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying to take it into history because I think it has actually been excluded from history by saying that it's about pathology or sickness, which of course it is, but even that language is historically rooted. So I'm, I'm trying to set the the abuse crisis in its present form into a, 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 a richer relationship with its surrounding history. Sounds fascinating. And anyone who picks up history and presence will get a bit of a sense of that, I think, from your last chapter. But of course, yes. there's much, much more to say on that topic. Well, thank you very much for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>